Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud. I'm Teja Srinivasan, New England Review's spring podcast producer. Today, we'll feature poet Helene Achanzar, beginning with her reading of her poem Chicago, followed by my conversation with Helene. Chicago appeared in volume 42.4 of the New England Review in winter of 2021. Helene is a Filipina-Canadian poet and educator. She's an associate editor for Poetry Northwest and is currently working as the director of programs at the Chicago Poetry Center. She had two poems published in volume 42.4 of NER, Chicago and Etymology. She is also the winner of our 2022 Emerging Writers Award, chosen among a very strong pool of writers published by NER in 2021. Helene will receive a full scholarship to the Breadloaf Writers Conference this August. My conversation with Helene was a memorable one. We touched on everything from poetic structure to the realities of labor to modern paintings. I even got a brief history lesson on the city of Chicago and a foray into the city's food scene. Chicago lives vividly in Helene's poetry and her musings on the role of art and literature in a post-pandemic society offer some extra insight into her work. Here is Helene reading Chicago. Chicago. With yearning do I cast my eyes upon you who makes the only gesture in the world. An earnest genuflection to those who rise to labor, to income, a city that works. I'm with you in the pastel sky upon a bus driver's dawn shift, in the eerie fluorescence that covers a teenager stocking cans past midnight. I'm with you in the teachers rummaging through dollar stores and in the women pushing strollers of children not their own in the strange rocking of parked trucks behind the 24-hour hardware store, and in the echoes of vaults and banks bearing the flag of some republic or another, I'm with you. How I curl around you, the lamppost, for I'm the ruined sedan. I'm with you in the steam rising from a cart of boiled elotes, in the snap of a ballpark frank, in the simmering white wine of chicken Vesuvio from the kitchens of restaurants with white tablecloths where three-piece string ensembles move from couple to couple playing songs like Bella Notte. In the din of an alley lit by a dumpster aflame and in the grating scrape of the subway breaking, then roaring, then breaking again, I'm with you. How each winter I pray for snow then the strength to endure it. And never could I imagine that this pendulum between desire and toil was for naught. Helena Chanzar, thank you so much for being here today. I gave you a little introduction at the beginning, but would you please introduce yourself once again for the NER Out Loud audience? Yeah, you got it. My name is Helene Achanzar. I am a poet who is from and lives in Chicago, and I am really happy to be here, and I'm so grateful to NER for the support. 
And I also have to congratulate you today because NER just recently announced that you won the 2021 Emerging Writers Prize. It's such an honor. And, you know, frankly, I'm totally psyched. I'm really excited about this opportunity. And, you know, I think as any emerging writer can um, attest, it's, it's always just nice to have work affirmed. It's nice to know that anyone at all is reading um, and even better to know that folks are appreciating it. So um, I'm really just grateful to uh, both NER and Breadloaf for, um, for giving me the space to, you know, to dream and create more and to, um, to be recognized. That's really wonderful to hear, and I hope you have a great time in Breadloaf over the summer. I want to start with a question about the poem you just read, Chicago. I'm looking at it on the page here, and this poem is written in a prose-esque format with sentences enjammed one after another in this double-justified block. What motivations did you have behind employing this structure for this poem? You know, more than anything, I wanted the poem to feel like my city and to feel the way labor so often does, which is just completing one thing only to be immediately set upon the next thing. And I think there's something too about the momentum that's created or even forced by prose. So I didn't set out to um, create a prose poem, but I think the, the content really informed the way that this uh, this poem appears on the page. I also saw that you used a very similar structure in another poem, Tokyo to Davao City, which was published in the Oxford American. So did you have any other influences that perhaps led you towards this form besides the city of Chicago itself? Definitely. So my favorite book is Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities which is a collection of prose poems that's also essentially travel literature. And in the book, there's this moment when Marco Polo tells Kublai Khan, he says, every time I describe a city, I am saying something about Venice. And I feel that every time I write about any place really. So whether it's Tokyo or Davao or any other city, I'm still making comparisons to my hometown and every opinion that I have of another place is informed by my experiences in and my appreciation of my own city. Um, and so when I read um, Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is a book I return to quite frequently, I just, I think about Marco Polo describing these, uh, these different cities to Kublai Khan. And um, I think about how I would love to be able to convey sort of like the majesty and the wonder and the curiosities of these these places um, in the same way. Oh, I completely agree. Calvino's Invisible Cities is brilliant in so many ways. This poem is clearly cemented on your observations within the city of Chicago. And I've sort of come around to this belief that someone's experience in a city forces them to look inwards. So... What does your Chicago look like today? Well, I will say, you know, today is very different from uh, from the Chicago that I grew up in um, and even the Chicago of my 20s. So I moved back here after completing my MFA program in June of 2020. And at the time, the pandemic was totally ravaging the country. And there was so little we knew about how to keep ourselves and others safe. 
I was living off unemployment in my hometown, and I moved back to a city that felt both familiar and strangely foreign. So many of the restaurants I loved had shuttered as a result of the pandemic. Um, and there's actually the Italian restaurant in uh, the poem Chicago was one of them, sadly. <laughs> Um, and, you know, also so many friends that I had in my 20s had moved away. And so one of the only ways to safely be with friends that hadn't moved was to go on walks. I'd walk with my friends no matter the weather. We'd walk around my neighborhood with iced coffees and hot chocolates. We spent one Christmas Eve, that first Christmas Eve back home, um, in, a in like a frosty forest preserve on the northwest side of the city. And uh, right after, on New Year's Eve, we drove down, or I guess west, to Starved Rock State Park to walk through icy canyons and walk along the Illinois River. Um, and all this walking really helped me see my own city in a way that I hadn't before, when so much of my movement was destination-based. Uh, as someone who grew up here and started my career here, um, I've always commuted. And so whether that's by bus or car or train or driving to meet people. Um, but there's something really special about the destination being the time spent with loved ones um, or with people. And so, you know, in the poem, I really try to focus on this idea that this is a city that's full of people um, living full lives. And, you know, we might only see a sliver of it, you know, in, in their work days, but they're, they're whole people with, with an entire full and like lovely life. Wow, that's really touching to hear. And it takes us back to a time which now feels like ages ago, but was filled with so much angst and uncertainty. Now, glancing at your poem, hearing you say that, I'm almost reading remnants of the pandemic. So I have to ask, was that on purpose or completely coincidental? No, I, you know, I actually wrote this poem way before the pandemic. I was living in Oxford, Mississippi for my MFA program and was just terribly homesick. I wrote a lot of homesick poems uh, in my program. And, um, you know, and I, I was just thinking about like my people uh, and my people are all workers. I, you know, I'm from a working class background. My mother is a nanny and my father was a, um, uh, a nurse's aide. And so I think about workers and I think about um, my own relationship with work and labor. And I was just missing my city so badly that I had to write a bit of an ode to both the place and its people. Yeah, homesickness and nostalgia are often great muses for literature, aren't they? Kind of switching gears back to poetic structure. Are there any other forms that you've experimented with or constraints that you've placed on yourself? And how has that played out in your writing process? I'll be honest, I'm not very daring when it comes to form. Uh, I do, however, think that the couplet is the most beautiful and most constrained unit of meaning in poetry. Um, and it's also how my brain usually constructs poems. So very often in, um, in my first drafts, everything is in couplets. Um, only after that will I think, oh, you know, maybe this is not the right form or, um, you know, maybe I should think about this differently. But I really think there's something so like crystalline about couplets. And I, yeah, I just I found find couplets so elegant. You mentioned couplets. 
I want to go to your other poem, Etymology, which can be found on the NER website. It's written in unrhymed couplets. So when you say the couplet is the most beautiful form of poetry for you, how much of that is dependent on the rhyme itself? You know, it's always a treat when I can rhyme a couplet, but I never do so intentionally, um, or I never set out to do so, I should say. And so I think, you know, unrhymed couplets are are just the way that my brain like understands poetry and and processes the the information that I want to convey. You say the information that you want to convey, and I know you said this poem came from a place of homesickness, but I also read a little bit of a critique of working-class urban life in here. Was that intentional? And if so, what exactly is the critique? Or was that completely coincidental, once again? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you, it's funny that you call it a critique. For me, it's, it really is more of a love letter. You know, when I, when I say, like, I'm with you, I really do mean that, like, you are my people. What I mean is that I don't know what it's like to not worry about money. And I, I know that I'm not alone in that. I know that there are people working every day um, in, in positions of, of service and, um, you know, positions of labor that, that help this city and cities, cities and towns across the country run. You know, one of the slogans of, um, of Chicago is included in the poem, The City That Works. And I've had to think about what it means that a city's slogan is directly tied to labor what it means for its people and like the way that we you know the way that we claim that is uh is odd to me is is or at least a little curious it's curious that the city's motto is based on work or that one of them yeah i mean it's a slogan that was um popularized in i want to say the um uh during the tenure of richard j daly um a mayor of ours he said something about the the chicago blackhawks the hockey team and in the sentence, he was like, we are, you know, we're a city that works. We're a city of immigrants. And then he said something about, you know, the Chicago Blackhawks putting 100% of themselves on the ice. And it's just bizarre to me that um, we, as Chicagoans, um, think about this motto as, uh, as something that we should be proud of. And I think there is, you know, there is like pride in work, but I also think there is also danger in like romanticizing labor. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of the reason I was actually drawn to this poem in the first place was because it walked that line so well between celebrating labor and romanticizing work. You call this poem a love letter to your city, and I want to focus in on a specific part of that, which is food. There's a restaurant in the poem, there's a few dishes in the poem, so... What role does food specifically play in your writing life? And what do you think draws you to use it as an element in your poems? Because I believe you also mentioned food in Tokyo to Davao City as well. I'm really glad you asked that because it's something that I've not ever thought of before. There are so few things that we do every single day. And one thing we do every single day is eat. And, you know, I think that food has so much to do with our identities, not just not just culturally, but also in terms of like how we uh, understand ourselves, define ourselves, divide our days. And you know, with with this uh, with Chicago, I wanted to think a little bit about 
who creates the food that we eat um, and how it is that we like identify ourselves based on food. So, you know, like the ballpark Frank certainly, you know, is something that is um, that's relatable to um, to anyone who's gone to a, a baseball game, major league or otherwise. But there are also these dishes. There are all these dishes that come from Chicago: chicken Vesuvio, um, the Puerto Rican American hiburito. There are things that we have to be proud of because, uh, you know, at least you know, think about the hiburito. It's it's a working class dish. It came from um, you know, it came from a community that missed home. And it's something I, you know, can really appreciate about, um, about food culture and specifically Chicago's food culture. Lovely. I believe you also gave an interview for Entropy Magazine where you talked about your favorite dishes. It was very fun to read, by the way. All right. Um, I want to ask you about something that you talked about in the VS interview that you did, which is a podcast run by Poetry Foundation. You talked about how you admired the work of the late modern painter Robert Ryman. Now, I didn't know Robert Ryman's work at the time, but after doing some research, it seems to me that Robert Ryman is the perfect embodiment of simplicity and thriftiness in the most positive sense. Essentially, color isn't his playground as a painter. First of all, how did you discover him, and what about Ryman's work are you attracted to? The first work I ever saw by Robert Ryman is titled Vector. It's 11 wood units of the same size, painted in white, and hung equidistant from each other. It's displayed at Dia Beacon in a long hallway that's indirectly lit. So not only does the wall that the painting is hung on emphasize the texture of the panels, but there's also so much variation in the way each of the panels is lit, depending on where it's placed in the hallway. And Ryman never formally studied art, um, but he was a part-time guard at the Museum of Modern Art in the 1950s. Um, and then he used to always, he used to say that um, his favorite paintings were the ones that exuded sureness and authority. Uh, and I think in terms of what I like to read and how I like to write, I always want to make sure there is um, a sort of authority and confidence in the voices that I uh, that I use, and also in the you know the the poems that I enjoy reading, there are certainly plenty of poems that I like that are more um, inquisitive and uh, curious in nature. But I really love declarations, and I think um, the thing about Ryman's art to me is that it's just a declaration. You know, I think about the way that I connect my poetry to his work. And this one thing he said in the late 60s was, there is never a question of what to paint, but only how to paint. And it's really not unlike how I feel about poetry. Um, there is more than enough wonder and curiosity and rage and humor and despair to make for good poems. The question is really how to translate those experiences so that the mundane becomes remarkable that, um, you know, that's sort of like the way the unique textures of 11 panels painted in white become something really special. And, you know, I will say I'm also no expert on Ryman. I keep discovering his work um, every year. 
And I was recently in Philadelphia for the first time and discovered one of his works there. And it's this painting where there are, um, you know, strokes of green and orange um, and all of these, all of these different colored strokes that are painted over by these white, really textural strokes. And um, at the very bottom of the, of the canvas in the middle and not over to the side, just has his name, Ryman. So that his name really becomes part of the, of the painting. And so I thought about, you know, really the way that he creates this authoritativeness and this sureness in that piece by like putting his name basically in the middle of the of the bottom of the canvas, which, you know, is pretty unconventional. Yeah, wow. It's always great to hear these little inspirations behind pieces of modern art and paintings that oftentimes makes us as an audience question their meaning and purpose. You mentioned that you're attracted to poems that are like declarations. Is that something that you strive to make a part of your work or is that something that just comes and goes depending on the subject matter? It's funny, I think with poetry, I'm able to say things more confidently and to be more sure of myself than I am in, um, in conversation. When I was a teenager, I was told by a poet that I speak, na I naturally speak with some hesitancy. And that's never, that's never really gone away. I've, I've thought about that a lot. And so I think what, um, what draw, one of the things that draws me to poetry is that I'm able to be more declarative and be more confident uh, on the page than I would be in um, you know, a social situation or even in a podcast interview. I guess as we come to the end of our conversation, I'm looking at the two poems that you have in this issue of the New England Review. And several of the influences that you've talked about today, whether it's Ryman putting his name in the painting or you walking around the city with your friends, they come to light in your work after hearing you talk about them. I don't want to harp on authorial intention by any means, but I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, what draws you to write a poem? Um, all right, so I guess I'm going to talk about opera. <laughs> so um, when I was a little girl and a teenager, I wanted to be an opera singer, as I've talked about in, uh, in other places. And the thing about not being a good enough singer <laughs> was that, that it wasn't available to me uh, being, a, being an opera singer um, in any way that was, uh, that was really viable. Um, and so I had to find another way to express myself. As I've mentioned before, um, I come from a working class background and writing doesn't cost any money. Certainly it, it takes a lot of time it takes work and some skill building, you know, but certainly it's, it's cheaper than going to conservatory. <laughs> so I think in, in looking for something else and another way to express myself, poetry was what was available to me. And I'm not saying it was the only thing available to me. Certainly there were other opportunities to um, explore other media, but I think the idea that um, in poetry, 
you can do what you what you can do in opera is you can sort of be someone else. I actually think that was a wonderful place to end our conversation. Helena Chanzar, thank you so much for being here today. Tejas, thank you so much. This was so fun. And I am really grateful that you've read my poems and are sharing them with others. My pleasure. The previous episode of NER Out Loud featured readings of Cuban fiction by Ana Lidia Vega Serova and Jorge Enrique Laje, translated by Jennifer Shu, as well as host Madison Middleton's conversation with the translator. You can find that episode and many more on NER's podcast page online or on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. This episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by me, Tejas Srinivasan. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and all other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked what you heard, please write, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. From NER Out Loud, I'm Tejas Srinivasan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.